Hello and welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the Australian National Centre for Oceans, Resources and Security. In June 1999, the United Nations Mission in East Timor, or UNAMET, was established to organise and conduct a popular consultation on the basis of a direct, secret and universal ballot to ascertain whether the East Timorese people opted for special autonomy for East Timor within the Republic of Indonesia or for East Timor's full independence. The subsequent operation involved the RAN in one of its largest post-Cold War campaigns. This second of two podcasts continues the story of the Royal Australian Navy's involvement in the Interfet or International Force East Timor operation. We'll take up the story now from the 20th of September, which was the day of Interfet's force insertion into Dili. And to discuss this significant chapter in the RN's history, I'm joined once again by a very distinguished panel. They are Commodore Jim Stapleton, who was commander of Interfet's naval forces. Earlier in his career, he had commanded the patrol boats Barricade and Attack, the destroyer Escort Derwent and the destroyer Hobart. Vice Admiral Russ Crane, who as a captain, commanded the replenishment ship's success in the operation. Earlier in his career, he had commanded Clearance Diving Team 2, the Minehunter Curlew and the destroyer Escort Derwent. From 2008 until 2011, he was the Chief of Navy. We're joined also by Commodore Andy Goff, who as a commander was the CO of the frigate Melbourne. Andy later commanded the Australian Amphibious Task Group in 2003 and served as the Chief of Economics and Reconstruction in the Multinational Force Headquarters, Baghdad, in 2006. We're also joined today by Associate Professor Commodore David Letts, who previously served in the Navy as the Fleet Legal Officer during the latter stages of the Interfet deployment. He subsequently deployed to East Timor as the Chief Legal Advisor of the UN Peacekeeping Force for eight months in 2002. And finally, we're joined again by Captain Vaughan Rickson, who as a Lieutenant Commander, commanded the fast sea lift catamaran HMAS Jarvis Bay. In his subsequent career, he was Defence Attaché in Beijing and later on in Seoul, and he is now the Director of Maritime Plans at Headquarters Joint Operations, and he joins us once again from Hawaii. Well, Russ Quain, it's the 20th of September. What are your first impressions when you arrive in Dili, and what sort of tasks were assigned to success? Yeah, thanks, Rob. Well, um, <clears throat> as I mentioned, uh, we sailed on, on the 19th. We arrived off Dili early um, on the morning of the 20th, and um, as Commodore Stableham has indicated as the, the component commander, our task was all about presence. Um, the arrival off Dili was uh, to coincide with the uh, initial landings of the aircraft uh, into the airfield uh, with the troops, uh, and it was simply to demonstrate presence, to reassure um, people on the ground that uh, you know Australia was there uh, and prepared uh, for this particular operation. And I remember very clearly <coughs> the General Cosgrove making that very clear in the early parts of the planning. Um, so that that was our, our first task, if you like. And while I was very comfortable that the ship was well prepared for our more traditional um, roles of, of replenishment at sea, we'd been busy for, for the 12 months prior to this uh, in doing things like that, I guess we were less prepared uh, for some of the roles that we eventually took on that were related to direct support of operations, land force operations, and that interface between, in the literal, between um, the maritime and, and the land forces and everything that comes with that. Um, little was known uh, earlier on about the security of Dilly Harbour and the outer anchorages prior to our arrival. Um, the turmoil in Dilly didn't lead to the development of a very clear security threat advice, uh, but more, I guess, a suspicion of angry or unpremeditated reaction to the initial presence of, um, uh, of Australian ships. Uh, weaponry <clears throat> and the capability to conduct an attack from either ashore or by swimmer or by boats uh, was not known. Uh, and in the absence of specific advice, uh, capability and intent in that area had to be assumed. So um, it, it, it was an area of ambiguity that we needed to deal with. Um, 
certain security, certainly Security Assure, uh, had an implied degree of difficulty with the presence of TNI, uh, militia and refugees, all together at the same time. So the ship assumed uh, defensive posture uh, on approach to Dili. Uh, and initially we didn't anchor, we maintained a racetrack about three miles off the coast and closing the coast and then withdrawing to, uh, along with the other ships in, in the group uh, to demonstrate that presence that I mentioned earlier. Um, I, I recall on anchoring, uh, we went to a, a high level of, of defensive posture for potential, as I mentioned, uh, threat by either underwater surface swimmer or... Um, uh, by small boats in the area because we just didn't know uh, what what was coming our way. Uh, that lasted for a number of weeks before we were able to you know, relax that and assist our uh, our operations a little further. Um, you asked about the tasking of uh, of the ship. Um, success was used in direct support of of land operations on a number of occasions. Uh, on a number of occasions, the, the ship's flight transferred personnel within East Timor and conducted uh, reconnaissance flights. Uh, because the Sea King helicopter had a, a much greater range than uh, some of the other helicopters that were on the ground, uh, and uh, those helicopters on the ground were being tasked in other areas. We were employed in direct support of operations in the Akusi Enclave, um, covertly on one occasion, or in fact two occasions, on one occasion covertly inserting uh, some special forces into the area with the ship's, uh, ship's vessels, the ship's boats, uh, and also covertly inserting a, the clearance diving team for some beach survey uh, work under cover of darkness um, a, a, bit, a bit later in the, uh, in the operation. We then acted as the, as part of that, as the refueling platform for the army um, helicopters that were part of that uh, insertion as well. As was mentioned earlier, our other taskings included things like support to clearance diving team four um, in the Dili area and the associated areas, support to the hydrographic uh, unit, the flight, our embarked flight uh, with the Sea King in utility role. So uh, was extremely busy, always uh, highly sought after. Um, Eighty hours worth of flying in the six weeks that we were there, uh, and and achieved what I thought was a very impressive availability of just over ninety seven percent. So I thought that team did extremely well. Their role initially was to, as I mentioned earlier, get aviation fuel ashore from success to what was called the. Um, Fuel Armament Resupply Position, or FARP, which is uh, ashore at the airport. Uh, up until the 12th of October uh, that year, uh, Aviation Fuel, uh, F-44, this the, the, the NATO designation, uh, was transferred in um, DFCs, or Drums Fuel Collapsible, um, and we flew about 120 drums, or just on a quarter of a million litres of fuel ashore um, to support aviation ashore. The other roles um, were predominantly in support, as I mentioned, uh, a lot of work going on in the local area. Uh, we were, if you like, uh, in many ways, the interface between uh, um, those that capability arriving from sea onto the shore. So the ship's boats um, were extremely busy in transferring personnel. Uh, we were acting as the shipping management of the port uh, prior to the local harbour master being put in place, which was some time after we arrived. Um, shore parties was another big issue for uh, us. Um, shortly after arrival, within days, we realised that there was a need for additional support ashore in re-establishing infrastructure um, in a number of uh, areas, particularly in headquarters Interfet, uh, which had been trashed and, and burnt, uh, and they were attempting to um, you know, run a headquarters out of this place. They needed help simply in cleaning it up, painting it, you know, getting it ready to be able to operate as an international um, headquarters. Um, cleaning buildings, repainting, providing electrical repairs, you know, plumbing, all those sorts of things needed people who could 
get on with that particular task. So uh, shore parties were a big part of the naval contribution to the effort ashore, and they did, didn't just come from success. They came from all of the ships that were participating as part of the, the, the maritime component to this particular operation. Uh, public affairs. We had a public affairs unit embark, so we were doing that. We were providing a sea platform for the naval component commander. And of course, perhaps top of the list um, was um, support to the logistics. Logistics was a fundamental component of success tasking. Um, you know, we we were what's currently or what was then called the MAT CONOF, the Material Control Officer. And what that does is is provide a system whereby all of the ships within the maritime force can come to a single authority for parts or support, and then we would test the rest of the task group to see what was available in the task group to support that particular request. So we had a, a very well-defined process whereby we could do that on the part of all of the maritime components initially, so including the international forces, although once they became more established in themselves, um, they tended to move from that particular role that we were doing through to their own national support mechanisms. Um, so that was important. Things like health, uh, coordination of chaplains, garbage collection. Uh, some would might think that that's not an important issue. It was a critical issue in coordinating how we dealt with the garbage and we needed to be able to, to do that. So uh, that was important. I think the, the, the last thing I would mention in terms of our tasking was around fuel. I've mentioned the aviation fuel. Um, the issue of providing diesel fuel, not only for ships, in the area when we would sail and replenish ships locally in the in the area, but also transferring diesel fuel ashore. Um, we have quite often LCHs alongside with lorries um, on board and we would fill the lorries from um, our own systems. We'd had to develop those systems because that's not something we normally did in success. Um, and they were the sorts of typical taskings that we did, and we'd have you know lorries alongside regularly to transfer fuel ashore, both aviation and diesel fuel um, in the end. So Jim Russ has described for us some of those presence and projection and logistics aspects uh, that were quite visible to the force. But can you tell us as a bit of a follow-on, what do you think the reaction of the local East Timorese people was to? if it's a rival to all of these military people and the ships in the harbour? Sure, there's no doubt that the Indonesians, the TNI units who were there, were incredibly impressed with the show of force off the coast. Um, and it had a stabling influence on the potential for hostilities in and around because the wharf area for the first two weeks or so until the TNI cleared the area consisted of about three to 5,000 TNI stationed in the sheds and around the harbour. So that presence factor was extremely important. It also demonstrated to the East Timorese people who could see the ships offshore that there was a real presence and that they weren't going to be left alone. Their immediate reaction or response to the interfed operation was one of wait and see caution. A lot of confusion existed throughout Dili for a long time. And that was because of the existence of the TNI and some of the militias still in the area. And so they preferred to stay hidden as they didn't really know what to expect. One of their fears was that we were going to depart before the job was finished properly. And so they needed to get confidence that we were a plausible alternative to their violent past experiences and that we were going to stay and not leave them to face retribution from the militia and the TNI after we left. The city and surrounding towns throughout East Timor, you must remember, were completely devastated. There was no infrastructure remaining. And 
the provision of the ship's working parties and technical parties ashore was an immense lift, provided an immense lift in the morale of the locals. Once they saw that we were willing to send people ashore to help them restore their facilities and homes as best we could and the infrastructure look at ways of sort of putting power back where we could, um, we got their confidence and they quickly changed their attitude and, as I said, once the presence of the TNI and the militia had departed Dili, then they came back from the hills, they came back from the towns, the suburbs. I don't think anyone will ever forget the first arrival of Jata Spain to Dili. It was certainly an image of some futuristic ship from voyage to the bottom of the sea or even the equivalent of Starship Enterprise uh, from Star Wars coming in. The Indonesians were aghast. I could see the expressions on their faces on the wharf, like, wow, what is this? And when the doors opened and the cargo started to disembark, they were impressed. They stood back and watched uh, what came out of the Jarvis Bay and proceeded to the wharf and was quickly dispatched to areas. So that was a, an amazing factor. And each time Jarvis Bay came back to harbour, there was crowds around Billy Harbour to watch this futuristic ship um, create a formidable impression on all the locals as well as the Indonesians. But again, I think the changeover occurred as time progressed. They saw us more in the outer areas as well once Dili had been secured. They saw us around the bottom of the island later on in Suai when Trabuk was conducting operations offshore there. And the move to the enclave as well, they got some confidence that we weren't just going to be a flash in the pan and we were there for the good of East Timor. And Jim, just following on there, Looking uh, for a moment at the internal dynamics of Interfed, could you tell us a bit about how coordination worked with General Cosgrove and across the other elements of Interfed? Sure. Uh, leadership of the coalition is understandably a much more complex uh, challenge than command of a unified force. Not only is it necessary to ensure that misses attempted are attainable and acceptable uh, within that force, but to the degree possible that the coalition commander and staff acknowledge the reality that the members are somewhere between indisputable under command and stakeholders continually applying local and national interests and influences to their contributions and investments. In other words, everybody has the main aim, and that was the support of establishing stability in East Timor for the UN to carry out its future mission. How that was achieved and the day-to-day running of how that was achieved in a coalition force is not so easy because everybody comes to the table with different relationships, both with each other in the force and also with Indonesia and Portugal, for that matter, and, and therefore there are different constraints on different nations involved. So we had to work very hard uh, and the management of the coalition became one of General Cosgrove's major challenges, but also one of his great achievements. The management is a subset of leadership. And if leadership is as much an inspiration and emotion, the management is much more about reasoning, structure and technique. We had international members in the headquarters ashore who participated in the planning and would advise us what was acceptable and wasn't acceptable before the ships involved would send their signals back to their host nations requesting approval to carry out tasks, even simple tasks like going to Darwin and picking up some stores and bringing it back to Dili, or even providing assistance ashore or medical assistance. So all these issues had to be dealt with on a one-by-one basis. When the, in Interfed, it became an ordinary but important staff function on a daily basis to monitor and work upon relations between Australia and our coalition partners. Obviously, because we were the leader, uh, we had to often uh, work with and between coalition partners to ensure harmony and alleviate or avoid misunderstandings. And let me tell you, they happen 
very easily. And our leadership was able to work on a daily basis. As I said, General Cosgrove and I visited all the ships and spoke to the commanders. We had representatives of the countries ashore in the headquarters. And it was always a matter of discussing tasks that were acceptable to different nations before uh, they would go off and gain national approval. And one classic example was when we were trying to get Tobruk unloaded in, uh, in Suwa, which is on the southern part of East Timor. And um, I had a, an interesting discussion with the US because I wanted to use their super sea knights to sort of disembark Tobruk's cargo. And at the same time, the French amphibious ship had landed in the harbour. Bearing in mind, as I said at the start, that Americans did not want to have any boots on the ground in East Timor. We had a very good liaison officer, uh, Admiral, who was, who was stationed ashore. No, he wasn't, actually. He used to come and visit on a, on a regular basis. And he wasn't keen until I said to him, oh, it's okay, um, I've got the French on standby just in case you can't do it. And um, quick as a flash, he came back within several hours and said, no, the US can do that, it's not a problem. So that's the sort of balances that we sort of work between the different forces. Well, Vaughan Rickson, can you tell us a bit about the work of Jarvis Bay in sustaining this growing Interfet force? I'm sure. Um, I guess this is a hook to Commodore Stoblin's comments. Um, probably the hotel role that the ship provided during each visit um, was a real boost for morale to Dilly-based troops, um, as well as to the ship's fun. Um, the, the, the enterprising members of the ship's company uh, took it upon themselves to procure things for people in Darwin and bring them back to Dilly as they were required. And uh, and the crew's single hot shower and the high-quality porcelain facilities on board were uh, were a small but welcome respite for a number of the, the senior leaders on the ground and were, were used as a, a little bit of currency for um, negotiating uh, other things. I guess um, at the peak of operations, um, Jarvis Bay was conducting three sorties a week um, alternating the cruise um, with about a two-hour handover, handover of the ship uh, before uh, loading commenced between runs. Um, the, the Dilly Express name was, where the, was that period, um, and between the 20th September '99 uh, and uh, late February 2000, Jarvis Bay uh, moved uh, about 12,000 passengers, uh, 450 vehicles, uh, more than 3,000 tonnes of general cargo. Um, it included troops from nearly all of the contributing countries, some of who had never been to sea before, um, so it was an, an interesting trip for them. Um, fresh and frozen food, bulk water, uh, both in 1,000-litre uh, tanks as well as 600ml bottles, uh, depending upon what was available out of Darwin at the time. Um, engineering stores, construction stores, um, all sorts of welfare goods. Um, once Dilly had been secured, we were also involved in the relocation of internally displaced uh, Timorese people. Um, uh, one member, one was for as a group, the, the, our largest passenger load, actually a bit more than 600 East Timorese people uh, from Dilly to Swai, um, and a security team of about 60-odd infantry. Um, There's no suitable berth at Swai, and Jarvis Bay didn't carry any significant sea boats. Um, so we eventually rafted up bow to stern with uh, one of the LCHs, I'm pretty sure it was Brunei, um, running a brow to the bow door uh, and offloading about 100 people at a time to the beach. Um, and while this highlighted some of the limitations of Jarvis Bay and the, and the way that we were uh, brought into, into service, um, it highlighted for me the ingenuity of Navy people on the ground in uh, Timor and how we managed to um, safely conduct transfer of refugees in, in a number of uh, various conditions. Um, we trial other um, capabilities as well, rafting up to take fuel from success, um, using the ship as a, as a, for station keeping on frigates and, and the amphibious ships to see how the, uh, the ship handled in various conditions, um, launching recovering various types of uh, rigid hulled inflatable boats to see uh, what sort of utility the, the high-speed ferry format might have for the Navy. Um, so there was a, a little bit of experimentation that went on during the period as well. 
Uh, then later on in the uh, in the events, as the tempo slowed, uh, we amalgamated the two crews, um, ditching one of the COs, and my poor staff work meant that it was me that left, um, and, and we shared the burden at a, at a weekly or slower tempo until the ship uh, returned to Hobart in uh, mid-2001 um, to decommission and be handed back to the owner. Well, Andy Goff, your ship, the frigate Melbourne, had recently been up in the Arabian Gulf and you joined Interfet in January 2000. Can you tell us a bit about what Melbourne and indeed the other frigates were doing in Interfet? Uh, Rob, I think the uh, previous speakers have done a very, very good job of painting a picture of a very heavy operation at the end of a uh, 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 critical logistic supply chain uh, back to Darwin and the frigates in general needed to put a cocoon of awareness and protection around that in order to sustain and advance the operations. So there was a broad array of activities from deterrence, surveillance and force protection at the commencement of operations to logistic support, aid to the community and ceremonial towards the end. The specific task that sit underneath that was support to support the initial insertion of Intervet forces into East Timor, to provide ongoing presence and surveillance, including the maintenance of a recognised picture amongst all of the maritime units, uh, to support the land component and to provide humanitarian assistance ashore and to provide an aeromedical evacuation capability. But to be a little bit more complete about that, I think it's also important to, sh to run over again exactly what units we're talking about and indicate how they tapered off over time because that also knits into how they were employed. So at the start of operations, we had the Australian frigates Anzac, Adelaide and Darwin um, and uh, the uh, uh, international contributions of frigates such as Vondermeer, Priorel from France, uh, and the uh, HMS Glasgow from the UK, the Mobile Bay from the USN, and the New Zealand frigates Takaha and Canterbury. The other frigates that contributed over time uh, were uh, the Australian frigates uh, Sydney and Newcastle and Melbourne, uh, and also the Portuguese frigate Vasco da Gama. Uh, it uh, would be reasonable to recognise that by Christmas 99, uh, there was really only two frigates on station, and by the end of operations in February, there was only one. So uh, in answering the particular question about what frigates undertook, you can see there is both a scale and span of operations to take into account. Um, in order to do, do this reasonably, I've taken the liberty of consulting with some of the other frigate CEOs. My thanks go to Admiral Cullen, who was the CEO of Sydney at the time, and Commodore Peter Lockwood, who was the CEO of Darwin, um, but also to Commander Peter Thompson, who was the Naval Liaison Officer of Kuzi, uh, and provided uh, some support there that was instrumental to the frigates to completing their roles. So to start, I'll quote from uh, Peter Lockwood. He says that, uh, in his, his words, Darwin, I believe as she had long legs compared to a DDG and a Seahawk helicopter, not just a squirrel, spent the first weeks by ourselves off the south coast of East Timor, outside territorial waters, often drifting to save fuel, monitoring what was developing and being watched by Indonesian aircraft, surface ships and a submarine. We also supported Jarvis Bay with food and water for a prolonged period in the area so that she could remain on standby to evacuate people. So prior to the insertion of ADF troops, the frigates established a presence and conducted surveillance of the approaches to East Timor to determine the patterns of movement for military and civilian vessels. Persistent communication support was also important in the lead up to land operations. The Seahawk helicopters embarked were invaluable for over-the-horizon surveillance and allowed the force to monitor military movements ashore from a distance without necessarily providing a threatening presence. The Seahawk was also useful for logistic support, allowing the units to stay on station while it sourced parts in order to sustain the ships at sea. Following the insertion of Interfet forces into East Timor, the frigates monitored air and sea movements with visual and radar. Land units were monitored on coastal roads using the ship's cameras by day and infrared devices by night. 
persistent communication support to land operations was also highlighted as being very valuable, and particularly in the absence of uh, significant capability ashore. The frigates also stood by as an emergency lily pad for the ADF Blackhawks transiting across the Timor Sea. Those frigates, those frigates that patrolled close off the East Timor coast moved along in step with the army units as they spread out from Dili to secure the East Timor area. As land operations sufficiently advanced, guard ships were assigned to Dili, Suai and Akuzi. A specific role of the Dili guard ship was to undertake an internally displaced person's tripwire reporting responsibility so that any vessels that were moving were detected, reported and a suitable response could be generated from Dili. That sounds neat, clean and well organised. It was not always such. There were many wrinkles to this. Uh, one such wrinkle uh, is a, a narrative that... Uh, um, um, Pete Thompson t gives me that the, uh, a Seahawk helicopter that was delivering him to Suai in order to support ship operations there actually overflew some army units that were in need of support uh, but didn't know it because there was no radio communication and on the return journey they passed the Blackhawk helicopters that were being responded uh, directed in response to that situation. So coordination was uh, not always as tight as it could have been. Um, after the initial tempo of operations settled down, say from late October onwards, the frigates spent increasing amounts of time on guardship stations, particularly in the narrow slice of East Timor Territorial Sea, sea off Akuzi or Dili, and or patrolling the coast with coalition units. Surveillance and generating the recognised maritime picture delivery efforts were uh, undiminished. The enduring responsibility of Composite Warfare Command across a widely dispersed multinational maritime force with capabilities that span from s small weapons on LCMHs to large capability bricks on landing ship docks ensured that the frigate operations teams were always busy. The frigate helodex continued to be used for lily pad support to Black Hawk hel helicopters to extend their range and endurance. Support to land forces was also expanded to include respite windows, uh, and a section of soldiers would be taken on board, showered, uniforms laundered, given a hot meal, and then an air-conditioned bunk for eight hours sleep, then returned to the force. As the situation afloat and ashore progressively stabilised later in the operations, the frigates often had the capacity to send in a number of working parties to assist with repairing deteriorating infrastructure. The Akuzi generators were a highlight for Darwin, HMS Darwin's efforts. Sydney, Newcastle and Melbourne all made significant improvements to the Akuzi Hospital. During Melbourne's tour, I can also remember re-roofing St Paul's School and refurbishing a community hall. This was hard, hot work, but the break from routine and the appreciation from the community made it, for the most part, satisfying to, for the ship's companies that were able to pitch in. All the work ashore was significantly enabled by the efforts of the land force, civil military engagement personnel and or inserted naval liaison officers to establish the prime community needs and order, beg or borrow the necessary materials to do the work. Almost inevitably, the required materials would be delivered by an LCH or an LCM8. Speaking of those smaller ships, Jim Stapleton Russ Crane's described how many roles success took on, and Andy Goss just described for us the, the multiple roles that frigates took on. But there were a number of smaller ships involved in the operation. What were their roles? The smaller ships played a significant role from the outset, uh, particularly in the delivery of goods and services ashore. Uh, as Russ was talking about, they took fuel ashore um, in trucks and what have you. They were embarked. There was a landing pad uh, ashore. Uh, for, for LCHs, which which was used throughout the operation, they were critical in supplying Okusi as well later in the operation, and absolutely critical for the return of the people to Suai uh, and the southern bit of East Timor. It, it's interesting to note that the UN quoted that at one stage we had 
180,000 people who were just across the border in West Timor uh, in Indonesia, um, which or who were waiting for some clarification of the situation before they returned home. And they were seeking safety within Indonesia uh, and escaped from Dili. So they moved quite a long way, some of them. And we at one stage considered how we would move them back. Uh, the whole hundred odd thousand and the UN in fact asked us to have a look at it, which is another interesting story for another time. But the getting of the people back to Suai and Jarvis Bay took that task on, and I must say executed it perfectly, was to get some people out of Dili and into the outer areas once they were secured. And the smaller boats that Alec Patton, Brunei, Labulin, Parakan and Patana all contributed significantly to that. Uh, and their ability to get into the smaller ports to work uh, as a detached unit, they had sufficient communications to be able to talk to the headquarters and, and uh, the controlling ships. Uh, and I don't believe that we can say that the operation would have been as successful without those uh, units, bearing in mind at that stage that Tobruk had also, uh, I think, had put its landing craft um, ashore and they weren't in a position to recover them, uh, nor were they able to, oh, sorry, their, their pontoons is what I was interested in as well. Uh, and they had been placed ashore and had got to a state where they were unusable. So we had to bring the pontoon, Bailey Bridges, I think they were called, um, bring the pontoon down from Singapore. But every unit uh, made a significant contribution. And again, the LCH provided hotel services to, to, to the troops, moved fuel around, which was absolutely critical, and gave support, uh, and also had established liaisons with some of these outer areas with the local population, which was important in us gaining the East Timorese confidence. David, let's, while all of this activity is going on, what was the Indonesian stance to the introduction of Interfet and all of these forces into East Timor? I think um, one of the ways of looking at that is to uh, look at some of the documents that were constructed at the time, um, in particular the two uh, UN Security Council resolutions. Um, both of those resolutions, uh, we've talked about 1264, which set up the uh, multinational force, but also resolution 1272, which uh, set up the uh, United Nations Transitional Administration in East Timor. Both of those were constructed uh, in New York between UN member states, including Indonesia, so very much with Indonesia's um, involvement. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about just a couple of paragraphs in uh, Resolution 1272 in a minute. Um, it's also important to remember up front that um, it, was, it was vital from Australia's perspective that there was no international armed conflict underway between Australia and Indonesia. And it was never the case from Australia's perspective that there was any such um, conflict. And even further, Australia never um, took the position that there was a non-international armed conflict taking place uh, in East Timor. There were people being killed, there was widespread looting, there was, there was the destruction that we've heard about. But in terms of, the, of Australia's uh, understanding of the legal threshold, it never got into a situation where there was um, either an international or non-international armed conflict. And that... Um, has important implications for the force in terms of uh, there was no enemy as such, if it just for in, in use, using a simple term, uh, that was being able to be targeted with legal fo lethal force, i.e., shot on sight, and so it, it was a. Um, it, it was more of a law enforcement and stability operation that was taking place. I've already made mention of the Indonesian president's statement um, of 12 September 99, uh, which preceded Resolution 1264, where um, the Indonesian president indicated Indonesia was willing to uh, have assistance from the uh, multinational force. Um, 
the resolution of uh, 12, uh, 1272, which came out in October 99, uh, was preceded by a unilateral act that went through Indonesia's People's Consultative Assembly. And that was really most significant and I think showed the shift that, that had occurred since the vote on 30th of August, where you've now got the Unilateral Act where Indonesia is willing to accept that it no longer has a valid sovereignty claim over East Timor. And that really was the um, precursor to uh, Resolution 1272. And as I indicated with that, so this set up um, the uh, UNTE at UN Transitional Administration. But there's three key, key paragraphs. One, paragraph seven, stresses the importance of cooperation between Indonesia, Portugal and UNTE in the implementation of the resolution. Paragraph 11 welcomes the commitment of Indonesian authorities to allow the refugees and displaced persons in West Timor and elsewhere to choose whether to return to East Timor, remain where they are, or be resettled in other parts of Indonesia. So this goes uh, to what uh, Jim was talking about a minute ago. And then paragraph 12 very importantly stresses that it is the responsibility of the Indonesian authorities to take immediate and effective measures to ensure the safe return of refugees in West Timor and other parts of Indonesia to East Timor and security and, and so on as well. And so those, those documents place a burden um, directly on Indonesia uh, in in as, as Interfed is going about its business and as the transition to Antayet is taking place. The other document I think that's important to note is one that was um, signed on 24th of September 99, which was just after Interfed got um, boots on the ground. And that was a status of forces agreement between um, Australia on behalf of the force, um, that is the multinational force, so Interfed, with Indonesian authorities. And it had all the normal elements of a status of forces agreement that you would see. And so um, that was important in, in making sure that, that the force was able to come in and do its business without interference by the Indonesian authorities, as we've heard, who were still very much in place uh, in Timor, uh, Dili and other, other uh, areas of Timor at the time. So all of those documents combined, the, the UN Security Council resolutions, the status of forces agreements, the, the, the independent vote that, or unilateral vote that's taken place in Indonesia, show, I think, a shift in Indonesia's um, reading of the tea leaves, Indonesia's acceptance of the inevitability of its withdrawal from Timor and the transition of East Timor into now the modern state of Timor-Leste. So we've mentioned a few times in passing the Akusi Enclave, and on the 21st of October, Interfit launched a combined amphibious and air mobile operation into the Akusi Enclave, and this was the last part of the country to be secured. Jim Stapleton, can you just tell us a bit about where the Enclave is and what the overall plan was to secure Akusi? Yeah, it's an interesting concept to have a part of your country stuck in the middle of somebody else's country. It's a throwback to about the 17th century, 18th century way of doing business, I believe. And so the Akusi Enclave is about 60, 65 nautical miles southwest of Dili. Um, so, you know, about four hours passage, you know, at uh, a good economical cruising speed. And it became... Uh, it came to the head when a young boy arrived in the headquarters for the enclave. He must have been confirmed with, with Russ Train on this because uh, success took him back one night and they dropped him off secretly uh, back into the enclave. But I think he was about 12 years old, a very mature young man who came in to raise the alarm that things in Akusi weren't going particularly well and to ask the question, when are we going to beat it? And so General Cosgrove then mounted an operation using the Gurkhas and a small other detachment from, from other various entities. Uh, Russ has already discussed the beach survey completed by CDT4, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that in a minute. But um, we 
we established a way of getting in and under the cover of darkness and managed to land a force and secure the Yakusi Enclave uh, for the safety of the people who lived in the area. Uh, and as the mission progressed, uh, they as well came out of the uh, out of the jungle and the bush areas and started to re, uh, regenerate the area, which was a great success. But as you say, it was the it was the last sort of frontier after Suai uh, and the eastern end of the island, um, and proved to be a very very smooth operation, well conducted. Ross Crane, as Jim mentioned, you, you yourself are a former clearance diver and had a had a role here. Can you tell us about what the clearance divers had to do in this operation? Uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, success delivered um, the divers to the Akusi Enclave for that uh, particular survey. Um, we went in about 2,200 on the, uh, the night of the 20th and 21st of, of October um, and launched the divers not far off the, um, the Okusi uh, Enclave area. Uh, two, uh, two Zodiacs with uh, teams in each of those. Uh, and their task was to identify, survey and mark uh, a suitable beach for a landing area for the LCH, uh, HMAS Brunei, uh, to land early that, that following morning. Now, the way in which they conducted this particular task was what's using what's commonly known as a, a lightweight jack stay. Um, now, the lightweight jack stay is typically, it, it's a, a, a line of um, lightweight line, uh, if you like, or, or rope, um, for want of a better word, uh, laid from seaward, generally around the five metre mark, um, into the shore. Um, and there might be probably two or three of these lanes, which then divers will submerge at the five metre mark at the outboard end and swim in with a snag line to determine whether there are any obstructions or obstacles uh, between that five metre mark and the beach, which would cause difficulty for any platform, any landing platform um, later. Um, importantly, uh, the other element of that is not only the underwater approach to the beach, but also the immediate hinterland area obviously needs to be surveyed uh, because you might want to get on. If you get onto the beach, you want to make sure that you can actually move from the beach into the hinterland safely if you don't want to be obstructed by high cliffs or large boulders or whatever. So that was the task that they, they were to execute uh, that evening. Importantly, as part of that uh, swimmer reconnaissance uh, pair, which is the pair that are on the surface, not the submerged divers, but the, 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 the pair on the surface, uh, there was an able seaman clearance diver, um, Brown, Justin Brown, was tasked with gathering that beach intelligence of the proposed landing site, so that area um, on the beach itself. Uh, he was also provided to provide task protection and early warning of any impending danger uh, working close inshore uh, and for the submerged uh, team. During that reconnaissance that he was conducting, um, a number of shots and explosions were heard coming from the nearby town centre, uh, while two vehicles proceeded along the beach where they were conducting the survey. Uh, conducting a search to seaward using some high-intensity lights. So the lights were being shone out to sea. So um, he was able to, during that period, which was uh, uh, the greatest threat of compromise, uh, Abel Seaman Brown jeopardised his own safety by remaining close to the shore to provide support to his commanding officer and the submerged diving team. Um, his actions in remaining in place at that time uh, without... Uh, being compromised, so great personal courage and, and something that, that um, I think that team is particularly proud of. In recognition of that particular deed, uh, he was awarded the commendation for gallantry by Her Majesty shortly after the operation completed. 
that particular task was uh, the divers was, was completed. The divers were recovered uh, back into success at zero uh, two four five the next morning, two forty five the next morning, and we transferred the OIC of the diving team to uh, HMAS Brunei to provide advice on uh, the landing site that had been selected and marked. So his, uh, his job was to guide the CO of Brunei into the area which had been appropriately surveyed and cleared and, and, and was available for landing. Uh, Brunei was called forward at 5.15 that morning to beach and, and land the initial uh, force, including uh, vehicles, uh, for the establishment of security on the enclave. Uh, it only took 30 minutes, as she retracted, uh, 30 minutes after that particular uh, landing. And, and as I, I mentioned earlier, the ship in success remained offshore off the enclave, supporting the Blackhawk force, which was also part of the operation. Andy Goff, taking a big picture view of the operation, and you've worked in many multinational force uh, environments, both at sea and ashore, and one of the challenges with any multinational force is the ability to operate effectively together. How do you think the different units performed in this operation? Um, I took my views and tested them against the views of the other COs I've been in contact with to try and make sure I wasn't out on a limb. Uh, and all of our experiences are very similar. The Five Eyes community were well integrated by Five Eyes at US, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Um, and we've practiced a lot together, we work a lot together, and so interoperability was high. The other national ships either operated under NATO doctrine, which we're familiar with, or were from regional partners with whom we exercised relatively frequently. Uh, so there were no immediate difficulties which could not be worked around. In my opinion, all the ships were able to operate effectively together at the level of operations that we experienced on the day. I do not believe such a sanguine assessment could be delivered had operations been more challenging. There were some occasional idiosyncrasies, like the curious amount of time French units were offline due to national tasking. But the big lesson was that the comms link support was, in, was insufficient. The ADF deployable comms unit from Dili was well short of the requirement, and the US thankfully, quietly and without fuss, did the hard yards to close many of the gaps that were experienced there. I feel it should also be highlighted that similar levels of confidence in operating practice and the ability to communicate were also able to be projected onto our Indonesian counterparts. That served very well in taking out some of the uncertainty when the units were in contact with one another. As a highlight, only some months before the operation, some of the units were, that were during interfed on opposite political sides were actually operating together in exercise Kakadu. Well, having provided the stability so desperately needed by the Timorese people after the independence vote, on the 28th of February 2000, Interfet handed over command of the military operation to the UN Transitional Administration in East Timor, known as UNTAYET. So to conclude, can I ask each of you for your final thoughts on the legacy of the Navy's involvement in Interfet? Russ Crane, we'll start with you. Um, thanks, Rob. Look, I, I think there are two points that I, I, I would offer. Um, I think this particular operation, Stabilise at the time, um, demonstrated uh, an enormous hole in our amphibious capability uh, in the ADF. I think we were found wanting. Um, and despite, and I agree with, with Jim, despite what I would call uh, a successful operation, I think the lack of a serious amphibious capability appropriately linked uh, between land forces, maritime forces and, and air forces um, was a, an exposure that we needed to deal with. Um, and I would suggest that I think that has now happened. I think we are in a, a much better place 20 years later than we were um, on execution of this particular operation. The, the second point I would offer is, I think, certainly from my perspective, um, in, in trying to manage 
uh, fuel supplies into and within within the AO from a tactical platforms perspective, um, there were some serious shortcomings. Um, in the end, during my time uh, in the AO in success, we delivered in the order of 16,000 tonnes of diesel fuel uh, to both uh, units at sea and to uh, land forces ashore. Um, in terms of aviation fuel, a much smaller number, but um, a significant amount of aviation fuel. Um, at one stage, fuel supply into the AO um, was very, very stretched. I mean, we had less than probably two and a half to 3,000 tonnes of fuel available in Darwin, um, to the point where we isolated that and, and we had to actually look for fuel from other parts of the region and from um, strategic ships that had been uh, placed in the area where I would sail and have to go and do replenishments, console replenishments from bigger units into success. So fuel management in an operation such as this where there is no infrastructure ashore um, you know, any fuel that you supply ashore to land forces, and again, it's a lesson of that interaction between land and maritime forces, um, I think was uh, a real shortcoming. I'm not sure we fixed that yet. Andy Goff, how about some thoughts from you? Uh, Rob, I think the first one I'd make is that um, at the time, Interfect triggered a recalibration of focus uh, onto... There was much more considerate of regional contingencies, low to mid intensity operations, and joint force integration. Uh, it, to, to use Simon Cullen's words, it, it was a come as you are low end operation. We would have been in serious trouble if it had been higher end warfighting event, simply because of shortfalls at the time in weapon, weapons, particularly missiles. Um, the, the second point is I, I remember that for a long time afterwards, there was a lot of observation by General Cosgrove himself uh, remarking on how comfortable he felt standing on the shore with the naval warship Horizon behind him. And that um, makes makes me believe that a legacy of the RAN's involvement in Interfed was the personal experience of General Cosgrove, who then went on to be Chief of Army, Chief of Defence Force, and subsequently even more influential throughout government and advisory areas, um, about the relationship between sea power and land operations. And I think that that's a long-lasting legacy. Um, the third one that, that I offer is that, uh, particularly for the frigates, uh, as I've described earlier, there was a wide span of operations, a wide span of tasking, and it underscores the necessity for a multi-role maritime combatant platform that's able to respond effectively across the full spectrum of warfare demands and domains, and without it, the forces less capable. Um, uh, the general observation I would make, though, to cap it all off, is that Interfet was, at its time, the first substantial Australian-led regional joint operation for a lo very long time. And by then, all our doctrine and C2 arrangements were supposedly joint. There would seem to be reasonable grounds, then, to scrutinise the readiness, capability, capacity and sustainability of the RAN contribution to joint command and control. I know that some of this is folding out as the amphibious capability has developed, but there is a layer above that. And if memory serves me correctly, our people, as ever at the time, did an outstanding job. But systemically, Navy's contribution to the joint C2 arrangements was underscale, underprepared, and only one deep across the top end of a concurrent demand for seaborne command and control, JTF command and control, and theatre command and control, now at HQ Jock. And, uh, and I think that that's uh, an ongoing area of scrutiny. David, let's hear about from your perspective. Um, Rob, I'd just like to um, comment on a, a, perhaps a niche area, but that's the role of uh, naval lawyers here. Um, Jim had uh, two lawyers that deployed with him, um, well, separately, though, uh, at uh, while he was deployed in Timor, um, and that uh, it was it was the early days of um, smashing together the legal office 
um, in, into a joint unit um, at the strategic level uh, in Canberra. But the, the involvement of Navy lawyers deployed on the ground, being able to advise the component commander, um, Commodore Stapleton, um, as situations arose, um, having, the, having that availability uh, on hand has... Um, set the scene for uh, the continued availability of good, timely, quality legal advice as uh, Australia's maritime operations have, have continued over the last um, couple of decades uh, since this happened. So so this was a turning point for, for the legal officers in that sense, Navy legal officers in particular, in that sense, in um, in showing their value and, and, and worth to command at, um, at all levels. Um, Deployed in the deployed environment, all the way through to the strategic level where advice was being provided. So I think that that was um, an, an important outcome from Timor. Vaughan Rickson, how about some thoughts from you? Uh, I guess being probably the junior guy of the group at the time, um, my, my views are perhaps a little bit more tactical. And firstly. Um, it's the memory of speed and new technology. Both are seductive, but speed is really addictive. Um, Navy learned a lot from um, not only the things that we introduced then, but from the innovation that was shown by Navy people bringing those new technologies to bear in a way that made sense to the military mind. Um, and I think we're going through similar processes today in, in cyber space and uh, information domains. So... That's a, a, a great legacy from Interfet. Um, the other one that um, has always stuck with me was the formal departure at the end of Interfet and the transition to Untet. Uh, it was quite a sight with an international fleet forming a guard, Jarvis Bay and Melbourne speeding through the formation with General Cosgrove and his uh, component commanders um, out on the, on, the, on the roof of our passenger cabin. Um, the farewell offered to General Cosgrove by the Team Reese people was... Um, quite overwhelming. They were effusive in their thanks to him and to all Australians. And and that was um, reflected and it continued to be exactly the same when we went back for the 20th anniversary um, last year. Um, that visit last year allowed me for the first time to, to really consider myself a veteran. And uh, for me, one of the Navy legacies of Interfet and the associated operations is the much better recognition of our deployed service, um, regardless of the nature or the conditions of service, um, I think that the ADF in general does it much better now. And finally, some thoughts from you, Jim Stapleton. Thank you. Um, I'd just like to comment on four things uh, briefly. The ADF uh, and its reputation, HQ ADF uh, structure, regional relationships and our people. The success of the Operation Stabilise enhanced Australia's standing in the community of nations that participated and bolstered the ADF's reputation nationally and internationally. The development raised the ADF's profile in the eyes of the government and the Australian public, um, and there was some certainty about our capacity to accomplish, notwithstanding the threat levels, notwithstanding that it wasn't a, a full-on war situation. We did well in completing the job and the chief contributor and lead nation rather than just filling our normal, more familiar role of being a junior partner. International and regional respect were also enhanced by the operation because it proceeded swiftly and successfully and demonstrated a capability not done in the Asia-Pacific region before by Australia. Our confidence within the coalition across the ADF grew as the operation progressed and the management of the coalition uh, was one of the more important tasks for the Australian commanders at all levels. And the experience we gained in the management of these forces was fantastic in developing our new plans for the HQ ADF structure, which I believe is now more oriented towards a better outcome Maybe not a better outcome, but a, an easier line of command than, than existed at the time in 1999. And I often made the comment in 1999 that I didn't know who was my boss and I assumed it to be General Cosgrove throughout. And I think that that's the way uh, that we should have had it in, in the first instance. 
the new HQADF organisation appears to better meet the requirement at all levels. I'm not saying that it's perfect, but what is perfect when you start an operation anyway? There's always the need for flexibility and adjustment of systems to meet the new challenges, and there will always be new challenges, even though we use standard doctrines, we use standard planning processes, which do us which do us well, but we have to be flexible enough to change. And I think that the new HQADF organisation is flexible enough for that to change. Regional relationships, despite our uh, immediate, I suppose, uh, response from Indonesia was not what Australia had hoped. It's certainly not what it is now. I think that the thinking and the feelings have changed towards Australia and Australians are now more confident in Indonesia as well. But within the region, the advantage of having our regional exercises and relationships, as Andy Goff pointed out, were fundamental in us getting together and operating together, understanding each other and knowing what makes the other person tick. And I think that that uh, process of continuing our regional relationships is an extremely important factor in keeping together the peace of the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific region, as it's now called. And finally, it's the people factor. And again, our people demonstrated that they are the key strength of the ADF. They are all first class. Their innovation, flexibility, hard work and determination to get the job done, no matter what the circumstances, uh, is a credit to the Australian population. And I think that throughout the operation, uh, Interfet, all Interfet, Interfet forces stabilised, let's call it, because that was the Australian component of Interfet, and the services provided by the other ADS that weren't directly involved, um, I think, were a credit to the country and certainly deserve the accolades uh, that they got. So on that note, I'll finish. Thank you. Well, that certainly brings us to the end of this episode on the RAN's involvement in the Interfed operation. And can I thank once again our distinguished guests, Vice Admiral Russ Crane, Commodore Andy Goff, Commodore David Letts, Captain Vaughan Rickson and Commodore Jim Stapleton. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you again for joining us and if you like this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so that other people can learn about the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.